can honestly say over the last nine and a half years, I've never had any doubt that he was real. I mean, that's always been a solid constant. There are times when I, I'm less, less strong in my faith than I want to be sometimes, but there's no doubt in my mind that God is real and that he is certainly real in here in me. That's why I do what I do. From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiori. And in this episode, I speak with Dale White. Dale is president and CEO of Reentry Solutions Network, the Reentry Program Director for Good News Outreach, and the founder of The Living Harvest. For the last nine and a half years, Dale has dedicated his life to helping formerly incarcerated individuals with substance abuse disorders reenter society successfully. It is a calling he is all too qualified to fulfill a life of alcoholism and drug abuse that included serial infidelity and dangerous associations eventually landed Dale in prison. But his story took a sharp turn when he found peace through a genuine faith in God and a determination to stop the cycle and focus on serving others. He now serves on numerous boards, has discussed criminal justice reform at the White House, and is leading the way in creating meaningful pathways for reentry success. We started the conversation with how he would describe himself today. Because my work is mostly what I do, and, and it makes up a good portion of what time I have in, in every day, um, I usually end up telling them that um, I help people that are returning home from incarceration or prison. Um, my work centers around helping people with addiction and substance abuse problems who've been criminally justice involved, and that's a pretty much a good portion of what I do in my life today. It looks like you grew up in Delray Beach. I did. So uh, tell me about that. What was life like growing up in Delray Beach? You know, I was I, I had kind of like the storybooks, idyllic childhood. Mm -hmm. um, my family moved me. I was born in Indiana, and I moved there when I was about six months old. Naturally, I don't remember any of that, but... Um, my family, uh, my mom and my dad's parents both moved to Delray from, from Indiana. My grandfather on my mom's side was a tomato farmer, hmm. and he decided that he was going to grow tomatoes in Florida. And so he started a farm, and there was four siblings that their kids, and all of those people the, the four siblings and their husbands and wives came in and it became a family operation and, and it grew into shipping 70 million pounds of tomatoes out every year. Um, 70 million pounds? Yeah, everything wow. west of, of 441 and, and Delray between there and, and Lake Worth really was all our tomato farming wow. operation. And then my dad had a couple, about three cattle ranches too, one in Delray, one in Jupiter, and another one in Wachula. But, so I was raised on farms and, mm. and ranching and 
and, and grew up um, playing a lot of times, most of my life outdoors like that. Um, Delray's a little small town back then. Boca wasn't even on the map. And, um, you know, I grew up um, really, really well off and having everything I needed until I was about 14 years old. My parents sat us, I had a brother and a sister, they're younger, sat us down and said that um, they were getting divorced. And that's when my life kind of mm. fell apart. That's when I started having problems. My parents never had any drug or alcohol problems. They never fought. There was we went to church on Sundays and Sunday school and every you know weekends and holidays at the at the my grandparents' house with twenty cousins. It was just that kind of life that was really good, and and it and it, and it just came to a shock as a shock to me. Um, and then naturally, when at about that age, um, you know, you're junior high, high school, and you have peer pressure, and back then it was the the hippie stage, and right. alcohol and smoking pot and doing those kinds of things, and drugs was pretty readily um, they were readily available. Let's put it that way. Right. And I started wanting to be the part of that in crowd. I found out that you know when I drank a beer or smoked a joint, all those feelings that I had that I didn't really, didn't really know what they were from the the divorce that my parents were going through. Those feelings. The alcohol or the or the drugs made those feelings the bad feelings go away. Hmm. So that became my default mode, rather than deal with the feelings. And and even till recently, I couldn't put a label on one of them because I didn't know what anger was. I'd never really experienced it. I didn't know what the difference between that and hurt and all the other things were. So emotionally, at at fourteen, I was very immature. I think, but that led to a constant. With both my parents getting remarried, um, and I didn't like either one of my, my step-parents, but I started acting out a lot, and I was skipping school. I would much rather be on the beach surfing and, and smoking weed and drinking and doing drugs. Um, right. As a result, my grades drip, dipped down in the 11th grade to where I failed the first semester, and my parents couldn't control me, so they put me in military school my, for, for the second semester of 11th grade. My, my stepfather was a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force and a real strong disciplinarian, but my dad was not in the picture a whole lot, and he worked all the time um, at the farm. So that whole operation fell apart, too, after the divorce. Long story, but it caused a big rift in the whole family, and, and, and that was a real— from the age of 14, 15 years old until I was 17 years old, I went through military school. I ended up graduating high school in Delray, and but at that time I ended up um, being arrested for possession of marijuana with intent to distribute. I picked up two DUIs before I was 18 years old. Um, I wrecked and totaled two cars separate from the DUI incidences. Actually rolled one of them over, and and I walked out without any any injuries at all on all of those, but. Um, when I was 17, I my my mom had told me, she says, if you don't straighten out, I'm going to not allow you back in the house. And I came home when I was 17, and my bags were all packed, and they were sitting in the garage. And uh, I had a 68 Volkswagen camper then. I lived in my van, and I was I, – I had be, I started washing dishes early in, when I was 14, but that's how I earned my money, and I started cooking. And I ended up in Virginia through a friend of my dad's, and – 
he was going to open a restaurant, Italian restaurant. He sent me up there to train under the Italian chef. So I went up there and trained and was coming back to Florida to do that. And when the economy tanked and that started my cooking career. But anyway, that, that took me through my childhood. You had mentioned it before, but you got into the restaurant business. So you were cooking and um, you eventually even, it said you, according to the information I found, that you even co-owned a couple of restaurants um, over time? My cooking career, actually, I was very, very good at it. I, I, I worked for a seafood restaurant in Delray called Bush's Seafood. And they were the high class, highest class seafood restaurant or restaurant in that area. They're on the, on the, on the ocean over in A1A and Ocean Ridge. And the chef there took a liking to me. And, and I did a real good job learning how to do my job, his job, and whatever I could. I, it was a natural gift to me. And that's where there was a gentleman that was going to develop the farmland where we had our farm. And he bought, bought the farmland. And he was a developer out of Virginia Beach, Virginia. But he was going to build a golf course and a, and, a, and a country club, and he was he was an Italian guy, and he and he had his favorite Italian restaurant in Virginia, so he wanted to open an Italian restaurant in Delray. So he knew I cooked, and my dad and him were were you know my dad was very business savvy. He was on a board of a Barnett Bank and those kinds of things, yeah. so he was very well connected. And I he asked me if I would go to Virginia Beach, Virginia, and train under his Italian chef up there that he frequented at a restaurant up there and he was going to pay my way and, and put me up in a hotel. Mm -hmm. And sounds like a good thing. I mean, I was 18 years old. Sure. I mean, it was great. I mean, it was, you know, and I loved cooking and I loved that nights that, that lifestyle because most of the people that I knew in that industry lived a lifestyle that was exciting. Um, Mm -hmm. drugs were acceptable. Drinking was acceptable. And so when I got to Virginia beach, it was an Italian restaurant. The owner was, um, a wonderful guy or a wonderful man, I thought. And he had two sons my age and a daughter my age, or about all of us were about the same age. But I hit it off real well, and I did real well there. And the nice thing about working there is not only did was the drinking and drugging acceptable, we did it while we were on the job. We would drink behind the line while we're cooking, and the owner would furnish the drinks, and we would always have extra on top of that. The chef was an alcoholic as well. Um, and, and I'm, I'm his shadow. So that worked out really well for me. Um, the sons were into pot and cocaine and they had a nightclub that's, that opened at 10 o'clock with live show groups from Las Vegas. So we close up the restaurant at 11. I go there till two o'clock and drink and watch the shows. And then I hit the after hours clubs. And then I get up at eight o'clock in the morning and start back to work. And wow. come to find out that the people I was working for were, pretty well connected with the, some families out of New York. Bookmaking, loan sharking, that sort of stuff was was pretty much prevalent in my daily life at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, I started gambling on football games through the bookmakers there and, and that, that, that I knew. And actually that led into me becoming a collector and a, and a the book bookmaker would give me the money to pay off his people and they would come, they would use the kitchen. They come in the kitchen, they give me this money to give to him and he'd give me the money. So I ended up being in the middle of that. And I thought that was great. It was exciting to me. All right. Um, and was the restaurant kind of a front for that activity or? Well, it, it, it was, and it wasn't, I mean, it was a finest Italian restaurant in Virginia beach and, and the finest club. So it was legit. It was legit, but the, 
the lifestyle that went behind that, it was all, you know, you would, you would, we, you would call it today mafia, and, and there was write-ups in the papers. I've got some of the paper, the, that stuff that was written up, that were, you know, accusing the owners and the other people that were there of that. The owner's daughter ended up actually disappearing at one point, and they found her later um, in a shallow grave in a drug deal gone but gone wrong. But wow. we get phone calls at the restaurant saying she was in a in a crab pot in the Chesapeake Bay. And I had seen what happened to people that didn't pay the bookie um, because I was there to eyewitness that sort of stuff. I was never the one that imposed those punishments or did any of that, but I was certainly aware of the things that were going on. And naturally, those same people were dealing drugs and everything else, and I was not... I never did did deal the drugs or do any of that. I was more of the user, okay? So I stayed pretty much into the cooking part of it, and I just like to – I like the nightlife, mm-hmm. and I that's what I did. So What a crazy environment. Yeah. I mean, to go from, you know, some issues at Delray and, you know, trying to f- – fight off some of that and get your life, you know, in a good spot to, to end up in that, that yeah. restaurant and what was going on. That's yeah. just nuts. Well, and that was the summer. So I was supposed to go back to Del Rey and, and go to work and open the restaurant down there. And that's when the economy tanked and all of the developing down there fell through. To my benefit, or maybe not, <laughs> hindsight, the chef that trained me had a heart attack. Hmm. So the owner called me and said, will you come back? Um, I really need you. And I said, how long? Uh, can you give me a little bit of time to get there. I got to raise a little bit of money. So how much you need? <laughs> you know, and uh, right. he sent me a couple thousand dollars and boom, I was gone. And I ended up staying. I worked for him for over five years for his family. Bear in mind now, though, I don't have a, much of a driver's license because of my driving records already kind of sucks. So um, I didn't do much driving there. I met my wife. She was a waitress. I was the cook. I was still a cook. I wasn't the chef yet. We got married when I was 21. And uh, in the meantime, I'll just tell you that what a great place to be in Virginia Beach, Virginia, when you're when you're that age and summer break and all that kind of stuff. Wine, women, and song was my operanda, you know? I mean, it was... Right. Um, it couldn't be... It couldn't get much better than that, right? It couldn't. For, I mean, I was, I was just... Every day was a thrill, all right? And a lot of times it was a different person, different woman every day or every week or whatever it was. And and different, you know, just this drinking and drugging around the clock, basically, partying all, all the time. And still doing my job. You know, I, I got to know a lot of other restaurant owners and things through that because they all came and sat at the Isle of Capri was the name of it. Um, with the owner of the restaurant I worked for, um, a lot of them were gamblers and and playing the sports and all that kind of stuff. But they all sat around there and they tried to pick who's going to win, who's going to, you know. So right. I'd sit in on all those, and that's where I got involved. But um, one of the owners of another restaurant called um, Sir Richard's is a Supper Club over on Atlantic Avenue in, in Virginia Beach, and he kept trying to get me to leave the Isle of Capri and come to work for him. I really didn't want to until he offered me enough money to. I decided to make the change, but it caused a big rift. Um, yeah, I would think. And the Italian restaurant and the owner of that, it was a family operation, and they had really brought me in as a family member over the five years that I'd been there. And, and when I left, it was it was really bad. And I, I wasn't sure where I was going to land after that. 
Were you scared for your safety? No, I wasn't scared for my safety, but I was really hurt that I, I was asked not to ever come back in their club. The two restaurant owners who had been friends for a long time were no longer speaking to each other. Um, and it was those uncomfortable situations that I never did deal with very well. You know, I was the supper club had live show groups as well. And I mean, all I did was switch locations on where what I was doing. And my wife moved over there and went to be a waitress too. But after about two years there, that's when I decided, you know what, I'm pretty good at cooking. I need to really break loose of this and I need to kind of get better. I wanted to be, my goal was to be one of the finest chefs in the country. And I started looking at how to do that. And my mom and, and she financially, she had come out very well off the sale of the farm and everything else. And I kept, kept into that whenever I needed help. All right. And, and I told her, I says, you know, I want to change my life, but I want to go on, I want to go back to school because I never went to college and, and she'd paid for my other brothers and sisters college. And I said, you know, I found this school over in France that I really want to go to. It's for six months. And, you know, I forget how much of money it was right then, but it was, it was a lot of money and she agreed to pay for it. Hmm. So in 1982 from January through June, there were six students in the class. I was accepted to go. Um, it was up in Annecy, France, in the French Alps, about 40 minutes from Geneva, Switzerland. Wow. And uh, I spent six over six months over there um, learning how the French do it. What did you think of that? Were you, did you, it was did an you awesome take experience. To it? Um, yeah. I, I'll never forget it. It was me and one other guy and four girls. And the woman that taught it was, her name was Madeline Cameron. She had, she was a French woman who'd been on American TV a lot with Julia Child and others. Mm -hmm. She right. had a very, you know, she was very, I picked that school because of, of her and, and what she was going to teach. And when I finished that, I felt like I had really um, accomplished what I'd set out to do. And so I sent some resumes out and I, I, the job I ended up taking was at Maison Blanche in Washington, D.C. It means White House. It was across the street from the White House. It was mm. the highest end restaurant I'd ever been in in my life. We cooked with all copper pans and pots and pans. You know, it was the table side service and everything else that was there too. But I was the Griardin, the fancy name for a broiler cook. All right. Okay. <laughs> I, w I would not have known what that meant. But everybody that worked there was, was French. All right. And they spoke in French. Everything, the whole line was called in French. And I had lived in France for six months, but I still couldn't really speak the language. But I could, I could understand the food. And... So I went to work there. Um, that was the year the plane went down to the Potomac. All right. So did really well there. And then I stayed there for, I guess, almost a year. And the owner of the supper club that I had left um, gave me a call. He wanted me to come back to Virginia. Um, and he wanted to go partners with me on a restaurant. He was going to put up the money and I was going to put up the talent. So my wife and I, and bear in mind, I went to school without my wife. I left her behind. And um, I lived in Washington, D.C. most of the time without her. And mm -hmm. I'll go on to tell you that I was not a very good husband. All right. Okay. Um, I was not loyal at all. And, and it was just I had no conscience when it came to that kind of stuff. You know, I look back in hindsight today and, and I realized that at 14, there was a memory that I that comes up to me all the time. That's back when we had 45 records. Right. All right. And I had a 45 of the Lord's Prayer. All of that came down. I would go in my room and curl up in a ball and put that 45 record on and pull the arm back because it would keep playing over and over again. The Lord's Prayer for me. And, and at that time, my prayer was, God, just fix this. 
you know? Fix your family. Yeah. Right. And, you know, that never happened. And I don't, I don't remember consciously making a decision at that time that, you know, but I, I look at it now and I, and I think to myself, you know, my reasoning must have been, you know, if there was a God, he wasn't doing anything to help me. All right. Mm -hmm. So either he wasn't real or something was wrong with me. Anyway, I turned uh, at 14, I turned my, my back on God and walked away from him. All right. And I went on for 40 years like that. So the things I'm telling you now, you know, I remember coming home um, when I was still living at my mom's house and my don't remember how I got home. It wasn't my car wasn't in the driveway. I couldn't find any anything in my pockets. But the only thing I dug out of my pocket was a crumbled piece of paper with the with the um, the prayer on it. Um, footprints. Mm, right. All right. I still to this day do not. It gives me goosebumps even when I talk about it. All right. I really believe God's been carrying me all these years, right? Um, for some reason, but so that 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 I went back to to Virginia um, and opened the gourmet room. It was a seven course prefix dinner type thing. I actually had Madeline Cameron come over from France and oh, wow. help me with the grand opening. Nice. And I did a few TV shows there with that. I started an apprenticeship program with with a couple of guys and. So things are good. You're smoking and drinking and everything, and that's all under. No, they. That, how are I, you managing all that? Well, there were times when I wasn't, and there were other times when I just functioned. All right, okay. I was definitely, and people at that point were telling me I had a problem. My wife, especially, even though she drank and smoked a little weed and everything, but she could. She she's one of those that could smoke a cigarette out of a pack of cigarettes and lay it on the table and never go back for it. All right, same thing with a drink drink half of it and leave it on the table. Me, I never did any of that. I mean, I, whatever I started on, it wasn't enough. So what happened was I had a wine distributor that by that time I, I had a very extensive wine list and, and I had a wine distributor that said, why don't you open your own place and get away from them guys? Did you buy that? I said, because I don't have money. You know, I blew all my money. And uh, he says, I'll, I'll tell you what. He says, I'll loan you the money to buy them out. See if they'll sell out to you. And we talked about it and he says, make them this offer and they didn't want to hear anything about it. So he told me, he says, well, you know what? Why don't you do this? Why don't you go find a location and I'll back you? Hmm. $225,000 later, we opened Dale's at Chicks Beach. And okay. I opened to only had 76 seats to a packed house with a waiting line every night. At that point, my disease of addiction went into overdrive. Hmm. And it got to the point where I'd just go to the register, grab a few thousand dollars, and I'd walk out the door. And we had a limousine service that were bringing people to dinner that would pick them up, take them by the drive through the beach with a split of champagne and then let them, you know, take them home after dinner. Well, the limo driver and I got to be pretty good friends and he liked cocaine. And um, so after work, I was using the limo and uh, we were going out on the town everywhere and I loaded up with a bunch of women. Now, my wife, you know, she's not knowing about half this or at least. I didn't think she did. No, is she in the restaurant with she, you? She ends up being the front of the house person. I'm the back okay. of the house, but she had no clue. I mean, my drugs at that point, I would call my fishmonger was my drug dealer, and I call him up and I say, "I need a I need a red snapper," and that was a code for stick an ounce of cocaine in the belly of it, and send it to me. I write you a check, and that's that's how I was getting my stuff. I mean, it sounds like a movie. It does, and and you know, but that was my life. All right, I mean. So do you think the progression of the addiction was just 
the natural need to keep amping up or was it, did you feel an immense amount of pressure in your life? I mean, all this added responsibility had to take a toll. Well, it got to the point where, and and this was the, my alcoholism mostly, I couldn't function without it. I mean, I had to have two or three in the morning just to get going. Mm -hmm. I mean, the shakes would be so bad and everything else. I had to have two or three just to stop the shakes. Um, And then I went all day long like that. And then, you know, the restaurant business is funny because when, when you're the restaurant owner, everybody wants the restaurant owner to, and especially the chef to come and sit down with them and have a, to have a drink. So right. all I'm doing is, is table hopping. All right. And, uh, you know, by the time midnight came and it was time to close, I'm ready. I should be ready to go home. And I'm, I'm that's when I go, want to go out and, and party. And I've been drinking all day. Hmm. So I'd end up on a cocaine run in my mistress's house and my wife would have to come and bang on the door and say, come and open the restaurant. And with some expletives thrown in there behind it. All right. Right. Um, that's how bad it got. And so it sounds like she was up to a certain point, I guess, but forgiving, I don't know what the right word is. Well, I guess I was pretty good at, at, I'm sorry, I'll never do it this time. I'm never, I'll never do this again. Um, and then I would tell her I was going to quit, and I'd quit for a little while. Um, I mean, it got so bad where I was drinking NyQuil, and so if she smelled anything on me, I could blame it on it. I didn't feel good, and I had a cold. I mean, right. yeah. you know, that was it was it was that bad. And finally, uh, because I was not doing what I was supposed to do with the money, uh, the backer got a little aggravated too. Not a little bit; he got a lot aggravated because I wasn't making any payments on the note. He and my wife decided they were going to put me give me an intervention and I went to my first treatment center um, in Virginia Beach area called Serenity Lodge and uh, it was a 30-day thing and you know they gave me an ultimate if you don't go here and you don't get straight you're gonna lose a restaurant my wife told me she was gonna divorce me so that was that was pretty good reason to do something sure all right I still here's how crazy I was Um, I had an affair while I was in treatment I got out of treatment, but I was going to get the whole world sober. So I started selling near beer and all that kind of stuff at the restaurant. And I was, you know, I'm one of these delusional people or these, what do you call them? Legends in my own mind. All right. So, <laughs> right. Um, you know, I'm going to cure the whole world now that I got to be cured. And, uh, you know, within 30 days I was, I was drunk again and, and, uh, back to the same old thing. And, but you felt the time you were there and when you left, you were sincere about I it, was, right? I yeah. was, I was, and and I I did want to clean up my act. I didn't want to lose everything I had, and I didn't want to hurt my wife because I I really did love my wife. Um, I just didn't know I didn't know how to be in relationships with other people at that point. Never, right. I don't think I I ever learned because of what happened when I was fourteen. Mm-hmm. Right? I just I, I don't think I was able capable of of being able to to feel unconditional love for somebody else. Right. It was all about me. All right. So the selfishness and everything came out. Um, so, you know, that, that led into them having to come back in and, and in the stroke of a pen, I lost my restaurant and my marriage in, in one, one hour, one day, whatever it was. And I had me and my dog and, you know, I left some stuff out when I was in, when I was in, that 14 to 16 year range, um, the one thing in my life that ended up being good was I got sent to summer camp in North Carolina to a place called Aramont. And um, 
I loved being there. I was away from home, number one, which is not, but right. um, it was all about camping and riding horses and all the stuff that I liked to do for that I grew up doing. So I, I enjoyed those, but they, that was on about 300 acres up in the Western Carolina mountains. And so I was, when I, when I lost everything, I was looking for a place to hide. And I knew that Sonny and Nancy there would probably give that to me if I asked them. So I, I called them, I told them what was going on and they said, come on and you know, you can stay here. We'll let you take care of the horses and you know, we'll figure it out. They were good Christian people. All right. And I was looking for God. I was going there to serve because that's where I'd always felt closest to God. Mm-hmm. All right. So I was going there to find God. Okay. All right. At, um, in 1984, that was, so I don't remember how old I was at that point, but so I got there and I stayed up there in the mountains and I lived in one of the old cabins that we used as, as, as campers when we were kids. It was an old wood cabin with wood, no, no glass, no running electricity, had a cold water tap out front. And I took me and my dog there. Now I still had my truck at that point and I was going to lose that because I couldn't make the payments on it, but I'm going to back up a little bit to Virginia beach because before I could leave Virginia beach, I had another DUI hanging over my head Mm. and I had just lost my restaurant. I didn't have any income and I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm in deep this time. I I got some, I'm going to end up in jail because of the DUI. I can't even afford to get an attorney. And I made a decision that I was going to do what I ever had to do to get out of that. So, I called the FBI and I told them I knew a lot of stuff. Wow. And they used me for a little while to make some buys with a wire on. And that had to be the scariest thing I've ever done in my life. I can't even imagine. Especially with the people that I just told you. And you knew what they were like. Yes. So um, the DUI went away. I was able to get out of town. But they never knew it was you that Well, it's never, I don't really, it's been a long time ago now, back right. in the eighties. And most of those people are no longer, um, alive. Um, they, but at the time, but at didn't. the time I didn't let anybody know. Right. And it was, I mean, it was me and the FBI. I didn't tell anybody. So you didn't have to look over your shoulder, that kind of no, thing. No, because I left town. Right. And they didn't know that I had done that. All right. Mm. All they know. That's incredible. I can't even imagine how scary that yeah, was. Yeah, I mean, I would go in and buy the drugs and all with the wire on, and and then I would leave, and the FBI was just record was collecting the information. So um, they used it later on, and and, okay. and some people went away for a good amount of time. All right, so I don't tell that story much, but I do include it in my story now. It's part of my past. I guess it shows your your level of desperation too. Well, um, and that's what I'm trying to put across here. I mean, right. I was willing to do anything to get out of the box that I was in. So anyway, I went to North Carolina and I, I took my dog and I ended up having to get a moped because I did lose the truck because I couldn't make the payments on it. And I had no income coming in and it got so bad to where I was still drinking. Um, and I'd, I'd make a trip to town on the moped and I, I got to the point where I didn't have any money and I, I had to feed the dog. So I bought a bag of Purina puppy chow and a bottle of Jack Daniels. And I went back, back up the mountain and I poured the dog a bowl of puppy chow and I poured me a bowl of puppy chow and I put some Jack Daniels over it. And that was, that was where I was. I mean, that's, that was a bottom Mm -hmm. that was very real. 
that I remember vividly. And thank God I had my dog, you know. The only thing that I knew was probably capable of loving me at that point. And uh, it got, got really bad again to where I called my mom. I said, Mom, I need some help. I said, I need to go to treatment. I need to do something. And she sent me a plane ticket, and uh, or a bus ticket, I think it was. And I, I, I came back to Delray. I got into a treatment center down there, and uh, I started trying to get sober. And that time, I was ready. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiori Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell, and we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001, because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit FioriCommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. My dad kind of helped me, and I got set up, and I actually applied to MetLife for a, a, a job. I wanted a career. I didn't, you know, I wanted to get away from the restaurant business. So my brother was in banking. My dad was in real estate, and I figured, well, maybe if I rounded out with insurance, maybe, the, you know, that right. was my logic. Right. Have uh, all your bases covered. Have all the bases covered. <laughs> so I went to work for MetLife, and uh, they sent me through training and all that. And, you know, I started getting a little paycheck, and... My dad sold me his Cadillac, and I don't think I ever paid him for it, but he sold it to me, and he was getting a new one. I had stayed sober for a part of that time. And anyway, I started drinking again, and I picked up my third DUI. It was actually more like my fifth or sixth. I'd had, had some others get, gotten rid of. And right. I, I had hit somebody head-on in a head-on collision and, and almost killed them with a puncture lung in their injuries. I didn't have any injuries, um, but... I ended up uh, in court for my third DUI, and and the judge, he says, look, I don't know why I'm going to give you a chance. He said, but I'm going to give you five years of probation. But if you ever come back in my courtroom, you're going to prison. So I, 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 I went started going to AA down there, and I actually got sober and, and started staying, staying sober. And This is the mid-'80s? This was, or- yeah, the, well, actually it was 1988. Okay. All right. Um, when I finally got my act together enough to, to do that. At about three and a half years sober, I got me a sponsor. I started working for some guys in the, in the Alcoholics Anonymous program that were, that were laying Spanish S-tile on the roofs down there. So I became a roofer. Right. The worst job I ever had. I saw that. Roofing's a tough business. Roof. Oh, God, I hated it. But I was staying sober, and I was working around guys that were sober, and, and that was the important thing. And um, it was, the money wasn't bad. I was paying the bills and, you know, so about three and a half years sober, I met a woman and, um, her name was Roberta. It was love at first sight, but I'm going to tell you right now that two people in recovery, she was a recovering heroin addict that was bipolar and I'm both, she had more time than I had, but we were both, you know, early recovery a few years is, but we neither one of us knew how to be in a relationship so it was come here go away we're getting married one day we're move we're, we're divorced the next you know it was move in move out i was a basket case and and she had become my higher power god was no longer existing again mm-hmm. and if things aren't good with her then i was i was in a in a mess so at four and a half years sober i checked into codependency treatment trying to figure out how to fix it 
and I went out, it was a week long thing and I came out of there feeling worse and thinking I was more of the problem than what I thought. And I stayed, that was at four and a half years sober and I did that and I stayed in that emotional pain until I had, I was about three days shy of being sober five years and I just, she had broke it off again. I, I just couldn't take it anymore. And I went to the store, got a six pack of beer and went back to the, I was living in a trailer and I sat there and drank it and naturally a six pack wasn't enough. I mean, this is nine thirty, ten o'clock in the morning, I think. Right. So I, I figured, well, I'm just going to run back to the store and get another six pack. When I did, I got in the car and on the way to the store, um, somebody was on US-1 turning left and they caused everybody to stop shortly. And unfortunately, there was a cop right in front of me. Um, and I rear-ended him and got my fourth DUI wow. while I was still on probation for my third one that the judge had already told me what was going to happen to me. And that was 1996 at five years sober. And uh, I, got, I got sober. I only drank for that three hours. You went to jail breaking your sobriety for three hours. Yes. And the action that happened because of that. I ended up in prison. Um, when I ended up in court for that DUI, um, I had stayed sober. That happened in June. I had stayed sober, um, and I was. They offered me two years on the drug farm in, in Palm Beach, and I and I talked. I had I had I begged for my mom again and hired an attorney for twenty five thousand dollars because I knew I was in trouble, mm-hmm. and that's what he wanted to get me to help me with my case. And so they offered me two years. My attorney told me, he says, you ought to take that. Man, I says, I ain't doing no time. You know, that's the arrogance that I had. And he says, man, he says, you can't go to trial because they took your blood. And that was, you know, your, your, your roadside sobriety and everything else, you were messed up. So you're going to lose if you go to trial. There's no way you can get out of it. He says, the only other thing you can do is plead to the judge. So I, I decided I was going to do that. It was on December 8th, my dad's birthday, and I went into court, and um, I asked my attorney, I says, can you, can you get him to sentence me after the first of the year so I can get through the holidays? He went in there, and we asked Judge Berman. Um, he says he's going to plead guilty to you, Judge Berman, but he requests that you sentence him after the beginning of the year after the holidays. So the judge agreed, and he set sentencing for January 2nd. Okay. I go back in there January 2nd, and I had probably, I don't know, half a dozen or more people that were going to stand up and talk for me. When I got to the courtroom, it was full of the whole Boynton Beach Police Department because I ran into the cop, and right. I had violated my probation, and they had already arrested me on the VOP afterwards, and then Mothers Against Drunk Driving was in the courtroom as well. And all I remember that day was the judge on the bench saying this is the beginning of a new year and we're going to send a message that we're not going to tolerate drunk driving. Hmm. I'm sentencing you to six and a half years in department of corrections. Wow. Yeah. So I got five years on the VOP and they gave me a year and a half on the new one. What is VOP? Violation of probation. Oh, okay. When he first sentenced me, he sentenced it to run consecutive, which means I would have had to do the whole six and a half years. My attorney was able to go back after court and get him to restructure the sentence so that I got five years on the violation of probation and a year and a half on the new charge. So I only ended up doing three and a half years as opposed to the six and a half that I would have had to do the way he sentenced me. So I guess the attorney 
earned his twenty five thousand for doing that. Um, yeah, he did about half, you know half the time. But the whole time I was in prison, I, I I really felt like I spent a lot of time studying God's Word. I took correspondence courses so that I could actually become a Christian counselor. So why why do you think you were doing that? Because I I really felt like God was calling me to do that. I really. I, I really felt like that was what I was supposed to be doing. And I did. I mean, I, I, I walked a straight line the whole time through prison. And there's plenty of things that you, I mean, there's more drugs and alcohol in prison than other things that you can do to get in trouble than there is on the outside. So, um, you know, I got involved. I went to Kairos. I went to, I started an AA meeting. I was sentenced to Everglades, um, at Everglades down in Miami, a maximum security camp. I'm, I'm a DUI with minimum security, but they needed max, they, they needed minimum security people to, to go outside the gate. So my job at the prison actually was um, first working for classification, which is a sweet job. It's it's you help the office people and the ones that do classification. You know, it's it's one of the best jobs you can get. And then they moved me out as a warden's orderly. So my time was really good, and and I was in a position to really. Um, and I, I spent a lot of time in the chapel and with the chaplains and doing that kind of stuff and, and studying. And I, I was getting, my mom had paid for my classes and prison wasn't so bad. Um, I got through it and I came out and I was going to do that. When I came out, I came out through West Palm Beach work release and I needed to get a job. So Publix hired me while I was in work release in 1999. I started New Year's Eve. I stayed, I didn't get released until May. So from, from January to May of 19. 99, I was at work release in West Palm. And then when I got out, I transferred to Tallahassee because that's where my mom and my sister were. And I, I went to work for um, Publix over there where Hobby Lobby is now. It was, yeah. um, that was the story. The Killarn Publix. The Killarn Publix. Yeah. And I spent five years with them. And I heard that I could get my driver's license back if I went to Colorado. They were the only ones not on the system. So if I went to Colorado, I could drive again. So I took a my little $25,000 I had stashed with the Publix in my retirement fund, and I decided I was going to move to Colorado. All right. Now, I had already bought a house in that five years, too. I'd done pretty good, um, right. rebuilt my life, and I was mostly behaving myself. But towards the end of that five years, when I knew I was going to go to Colorado, I started smoking weed again. I started drinking again, and I had stopped paying my house payments. So I was getting ready to lose my house. So I sold, I sold my house real quick to keep from getting it foreclosed on. And Packed all my stuff and moved to Colorado. I got drunk out there and high out there, and I never did get my driver's license. <laughs> but I ended up being a chef at a guest ranch. I stepped down from doing that to be a wrangler because I really just wanted to ride horses. So I, I, I led trail rides in the Arapahoe National Forest in the summer. I packed hunters into the Arapahoe National Forest to hunt in the winter um, with an outfitter, and then I drove sleighs in the, in the, in the rest of the winter. And those that were, sounds those like were a the funnest awesome. jobs I ever had, all right? I was gonna and say I was that. able to drink and drug through the whole thing. So, well, it sounds like, uh, other than that part, that sounds like a pretty awesome job. It was. I mean, I mean it was beautiful. I mean, yeah. we rode on the Continental Divide all the time, and it was just, you know, it was up at the tree line, 8,500 feet. It was right. awesome. But you weren't doing well. I wasn't. Right. I wasn't. That's when I, I knew after the ski season was over and the mud season came that it was time to change jobs again, and I couldn't, I couldn't even put – Put two things together. So I called home again. Mom says, come on. And uh, I called Publix. I said, I had left Publix on good terms. I called him first. And he says, yeah, come on back. I'll hire you at full pay, top pay. Because I topped out when I left. 
He says, when are you coming? I says, I need a month or so to get my stuff done up here. He says, and he knew what I was talking about. He says, well, make sure you know you're going to have to take another drug test when you come in. <laughs> <laughs> so I knew I was going to, I had to need a, I needed a month to clean up and I, I did okay. that. I came back and I started back and, and that led me through till, uh, 2011, five years later, I had been doing good. I stayed clean and sober during that time, although I didn't go to church and I didn't go to meetings, but I was going to work and I was doing what I was supposed to do. Then I started. So what do you attribute your ability to be clean and sober during that period? Because I knew if I didn't, I was going to end up back in prison or jail and I didn't want to go there. Okay. So that was the line for you, all the other stuff, but this, you knew you did not want to go back there. Well, one of the biggest things, I was living with my mom. She's such a wonderful woman. I don't know how I, I, I tell the story. I always tell her. I said, I drug my mom through the mud for 40 years, and I basically what I did. Um, I guess I got to a point where I got tired of hurting. I didn't want to hurt anymore. I didn't want to hurt me. I didn't want to hurt anybody else. I was just tired. And um, I decided that, you know what, I got to do something. I got to get this right. But I started hating my job at Publix. And I, didn't have, I didn't have a vision for my life. I didn't have a purpose for my life. I started drinking. I'd go out on my lunch break at, at Publix on my bike because I don't have a driver's license. All right. They took my driver's license back in 97 when they sentenced me to prison permanently, never to get it back again. Oh. They revoked it permanently. So when I got out of prison, make a long story short, I, was, I rode a bike for 21 years. All right. Um, and I rode that for the two five-year stints I did at Publix. Oh. That's where I was at at Publix. I was riding a bike. I'm 55 years old, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I'm making $14, $15 an hour. I got no career. I started drinking again, and I, I, I think that was to just numb myself from where I was at in my life. And, and that's what drinking and drugging always did for me. It numbed me. All sure. right. So I went, and I, I'd go over to the ABC store at lunchtime. I'd buy the little Long Island iced teas, and I'd down two or three of them, and I'd go back to work. And Publix got wise to it because my personality would change just by having two or three drinks. So my store manager called me in and confronted me about it. To save myself, I went to employee assistance program, and I um, was able to get into my fourth treatment center. I'd been to three by now, which I didn't get into all of those, and countless detoxes. So I, I go to California to a better tomorrow, which is my fourth treatment center. And I get out there, and I've got a Christian counselor. They had a Christian component to the program. So I've got a, two Christian counselors, and one of them um, was a man. The other one was a woman. But they introduced me to Celebrate Recovery, and I had never heard of it before. It's a 12-step program, but they specifically call. See, where AA just says a power greater than yourself or God as you understand him, where Celebrate Recovery actually designates that that power is Jesus Christ. Okay. So I, I really grasped onto that and, and really ran with it. Um, and, I, and I found out that they had Celebrate Recovery at Clarence United Methodist Church in Tallahassee. I had never, I had never even heard of it. All the years I've been in 12-step programs, never heard of it. Yeah. So I, I get back from my treatment center, and I go over there, and I'm having trouble getting plugged in. I can't. I'm trying to find a sponsor. I'm trying to do what I'm supposed to do, and I can't seem to fit in. And... I drink again hmm. while I'm working at Publix, and they catch me again. So I go to the employee assistance program, and I end up checking into 
I says, man, I can't go to it. What's the sense of going to another in, in, in treatment program? I already know what they're going to do. But I end up at TMH at the intensive outpatient program over there. They showed me how to build a support system. They, entered, they educated me about the brain disease that I have, which is what addiction is. And I never had accepted the concept of it being a disease, let alone a brain disease. Um, it was always a moral failing. So when they explained all that to me, and then they told me that the best medicine I could do is build a support group and make sure that I have accountability in my life and that I'm able to share with others um, what's going on with me. So I was able to do that. And I went back to Celebrate Recovery, and I was able to get plugged in. And I met a man over there. After asking about 10 people to be my sponsor, nobody would do it. I was referred to this one guy, and I says, you know, I, I was told to talk to you. I really need a sponsor. He says, I got one opening on Sunday morning at six at 7 o'clock at my house. He says, if you can be there, then I'll sponsor you. I'm thinking to myself, who in the hell does he think he is Sunday morning at 7 o'clock? <laughs> and I'm on a bicycle. Right. I yeah. don't even know where the man lives at this point. But you know what? I said yes, because I was. I, that's where I was at. I, I, I was willing to do whatever it took. And you think people were reluctant because they knew your past and knew it would be tough? I don't know. Okay. Um, you know, um, a lot of people, some of them are just really busy. They've already got people they're helping. I right. mean, you can only do so much. Yeah, that makes sense. And, and the ones I wanted to ask, or were the, I always felt were the best ones. So most of them were really busy. The man I ended up asking actually didn't have an alcohol and drug problem, although he was in recovery for anger, for anger and food and some other stuff. Mm. But what, what I started doing with him is meeting him every Sunday morning at 7 o'clock. And what he gave me... Um, in, in that time as he connect, he reconnected me to God and his faith is what I still today, he's still my mentor today. I still wow. talk to him once a week on the phone, um, for an hour or usually on Tuesday mornings at six o'clock. So he's been through the last nine and a half, almost 10 years with me through all of the stuff that I've been with. And he knows everything there is about me. I mean, he's heard more of this story than what I've just told you. Right. And all of the little the little things that that happen and he's never judged me he's always just been there to listen and tell things that have happened to him that he shared with me but what he shared with me most was his faith and how god shows up in your life if you allow him to all right so he told me early on when i didn't have two nickels to rub together he says he told me about his story like that and he says you know if you get up, dress up, and show up, and you do the next right thing, and you ask God to help you, and you you surrender to Him, He is going to back the dump trucks up on you and dump so many blessings on you, you ain't going to know what's happening. So three months into this thing, relationship with Him, He's saying to me, I'm going to suggest you go back into prison with Celebrate Recovery inside. Wow. And I'm thinking to myself, man, the last thing I want to do is go back into prison. <laughs> you went to great lengths to avoid that. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, I'd already been there. I'd been there, done that. I don't want to go back in for any reason, but I, I did. And I started going back in with the Celebrate Recovery Inside. I was going into a color CI every Saturday morning, and he took a group of men in with him, and we went in there to minister to those that were still in prison. So I started doing that, and, man, it was like a natural fit. And I really enjoyed being able to go in there and, and share with them the good things that were happening in my life and give them some hope. Because when you're locked up like that, and a lot of them are down there, they're never getting out. Um, hope is a, 
a hard thing to find in some of them. All right. So right. I did that and I, I did that for about a year and I was in a step study on the outside every Sunday night for two hours over at Clarence United Methodist Church with about 12 other men. And about halfway through that, something happened and I realized that God was real. Not only was he real, but he was moving in my life um, in a big way. I just knew that I was where I was supposed to be and, and that I was doing what I was supposed to be doing. Right. And I, I get choked because that hasn't changed. Mm-hmm. And I told, uh, I told Lonnie, my sponsor, I said, you know, I really love what we're doing inside. I said, but where these guys really need the help is when they hit the gate coming home. I said, God, I, I believe God is putting on my heart to open a house for men to help them when they're released from prison. So we talked about it for a, a while, and I kept, you know, we talked about it at length, and I, I kept telling him, I'm really feeling led to do this. He says, why don't we go talk to the pastor and see, let's see if it's something he feels like maybe God's calling you to do, or if this is this Dale's visions of grandeur, all right? <laughs> right. And uh, I agreed. I said, sure. So uh, we got through with that meeting and with the pastor, and and he had seen my whole growth at, through that Celebrate Recovery program at the church, and I had already right. shared my testimony at church. And so I was very well connected at Colonial United Methodist Church, and and I had a lot of support there. And, right. And I want to jump back just for sure, interrupt you just for a second. When you're talking about that, you realized when you realized that God was real. Yeah. What was different? How did that change you as opposed to before when you were seeking Him and reading the Bible and you had had some peripheral connection all through your life? What was different about this time? All the other times, there was always some doubt. Mm-hmm. This time, there was no doubt. All right. That's what made it different. I mean, I, I I knew he was real. He was there with me. All I had to do, his grace was clearly evident in my life at this point, all right? And, you know, some of the promises that they guarantee are you won't regret the past or wish to shut the door on it. And I was getting to that point where I wasn't a, I wasn't afraid of my past and what people would think of me anymore because I know that's not who I was anymore. And one of the ways that I knew that I'm supposed to serve serve God was to let other people know what had happened and what he was doing. It was clearly evident the way I was living now was not the way I was living before. Right. And that when I wanted to live for God before, I struggled to do it because there was it wasn't real to me. I wanted mm-hmm. to be a better person. And I wanted to do the right things, but I didn't have the power to do it. Right. You were still depending on yourself. I was still depending on myself. I hadn't surrendered, you know? What happened with Celebrate Recovery and, and in that step study when I started going through that and sharing my past and figuring out all the things that I you know, basically what I did is and I tell people this today, I had to get rid of all the junk to make room for the Holy Spirit to work in my life, all right? I mean, I kept stifling the Spirit with all the stuff that I was doing. Once I was able to get rid of all that junk and make room and then really ask God to 
to, or, or give myself to God to do whatever he wanted me to do, um, that's when he showed up. Mm-hmm. He was there all the time. That's when I showed up. <laughs> right. All right. Right. And and that's what I always got to remember. Um, he's always been there. I walked away a million times. And, you know, I I can honestly say over the last nine and a half years, I've never had any doubt that he was real again. I mean, that's always been a solid constant. There are times when I, I'm less, less strong in my faith than I want to be sometimes. But there's no doubt in my mind that God is real and that he is certainly real in here in me. That's why I do what I do today. And that the only reason I'm able to do what I do today is because of what he's done in my life. It's not nothing, nothing I can really take, right. take credit for. So. Okay. So you're, you're focused now on helping men as they come, as they're released right. from, from jail. And, prison. and you know, a lot, the last nine years has been phenomenal. It started with Lonnie after I decided that I wanted to open this house. It just so happened that he had a house that was sitting vacant on the south side in the middle of the projects. He came on board with me, and he put that house up for us to use. And that's where I started. And that was Serenity House, our first house. And it's still Serenity House today, and there's still men living in it with a living harvest. All right, A lot of things happened over the last nine years. So in order to do that, I had to figure out a way to raise the money to do it. And we didn't have, I didn't have any money. He was not charging me for the house, but I, I started washing cars um, with another guy that had been formerly incarcerated for 24 years for um, life sentence. And we were washing cars and detailing cars to raise money. And then we, we, I moved into that house and I formed a board of directors to start the nonprofit. I started studying about how to do that because I didn't have a clue. Right. But I did. I I taught myself everything I needed to know to open a nonprofit and then put together, started gathering the people together that I thought could help do that. And we put together the team and I had a, and I was trying to cover my bases. I had an attorney on my board and he sold an office building that had a bunch of furniture in it. So he gave us the furniture and I started using, we moved it all to the house and I started having garage sales on the South side on the weekends to raise money. Right. And that's how I started. And then I had a congressman call me that had been in my step study. He started coming to the step study to find out how to help his son Hmm. who was in prison. When I told him what I was doing, he, he said, Dale, he says, are you, would you be willing to help my son? I said, sure. So he sat down and wrote me my first check for a thousand dollars. And I took his son as my first client when he was in work release in West Palm. Um, while he's still doing his federal sentence. He went went on to um, throw a fundraiser for me um, at his farm and uh, raised $50,000 for us at the Living Harvest. Wow. Um, so that was kind of your launch point, yeah. right, for the ministry? Right. Yeah, so tell us about the Living Harvest. I, I know most people would know it more from the thrift stores probably exactly. than the actual ministry. Right. So, so tell, tell us about that. So naturally, if, if I'm going to do it, I want it to be the best. So I started looking for the best thrift stores in the country and how they were operating. But I found one in Orlando called the Sharing Center, the Christian Sharing Center. And, you know, I'm coming from a point of faith here. I want I want this to be a Christian-based program, and, and I wanted it to be about God, and I want him to get the glory. So um, I connect down there, and, and a lady named Angie Romagosa had started one, the Christian Sharing Center down in Orlando, over 25 years ago, basically the same way I had started in a little back room somewhere with a closed, closed closet and some hangers. And, 
And she had grown it into a, a, a place in Orlando there um, that had a $3 million a year budget. So I, I call her up, she see if she would give me a tour. And she, she wel welcomed us now, so I took me and a couple of board members. We went down there and we spent the day touring their facility and how they did it. And then she gave me everything she had, from job descriptions to finance reports and everything else. So she actually gave me the guts for the Living Harvest program and kind of mentored me as whenever I needed a question, I'd pick her up the phone and call her. Um, wonderful woman. She just retired last year, year before. And uh, so that gave me the model. And then I found a little old place on the south side of, we didn't have any money. I found a little old dump on the south side across from Gandy Printers down there. I don't know if you know where that is. Oh, yeah. Right next yeah. to the radiator shop. Yeah. I mean, it was all overgrown with weeds. And I said, well, you know, I wanted something close that was close to the house I had. And I'm on a bike, and I'm trying to figure out how all that's going to work. And then I had a gentleman that had been in that step study, another gentleman, business businessman that was in there. And he started going in there with me. I was building a volunteer team to start going into all these prisons. And he went in there with me, and he got really involved with it. And I got him on – he came on my board of directors for, for the Living Harvest as well. And he saw the need that we had over there to start that thrift store, and he stroked us a check for $25,000. Wow. So – that got me started down there, and we stayed there for about a year. Um, we served a lot of people. My staff ended up being people that were career source, mostly single women with, with children that needed child care. And I was serving people in that community that really needed help. Um, and not only that, but all of them needed clothes and other things for their, for their homes and for their, for their, their families. So we gave away as much stuff as we actually sold. Okay. And we served a lot of people, but we were breaking even as all. All right. And that's when I was saying, you know what? I, I really got to find a better location somewhere where we can do a little better. So in all my stud, all my time out, I'm running around. I'm always looking at locations. And I just happened to be on the northeast side one day over there. And um, I'm picking up a couch from somebody in their garage. And we drive by. the. I, I got one other guy and we got an old blue pickup truck. That's the only thing we got for, you know, it was $1,000 we paid for that that same donor that gave me the check for 25 paid right. for that. So we're picking up this couch and I drive by the four Oak shopping center and it's all empty. There ain't nobody in there. I'm saying, man, this, what is this? I said, pull in there. He says, are you crazy? I said, just pull in there. Um, we opened the store there and it just took off. I mean, it was phenomenal beyond our wildest. That store still does phenomenal. I had to find a place for a donation center and, you know, I couldn't get Killarne United Methodist Church. They got that little Goodwill drop-off off there. I wanted to use it, but they didn't want to give that up because Goodwill was a good tenant. So I started looking, and I found the Tharp Street location. And I said, man, this is kind of like a no-brainer. On the south side where our third store is now, uh, the Orange Avenue store, that was actually the location I wanted first when I, before I started. Right. It was the old Badcock Furniture Store. That's ended up being a real good location too. And the reason I wanted that is because then I was getting ready to go into recycling because we were, we were, we had 40,000 pounds of clothes a month. We couldn't hang that we were getting donated 40,000 pounds wow. of clothes a month that we couldn't even put on a hanger. That store has been a good store too. And I, the other thing that that store had was it had a big conference room, which allowed me a big meeting room. But by now we, the over the edge event had raised a bunch of money and I bought a six bedroom, six and a half bath house on the South side. Um, so Living Harvest now houses 26 men at this point over since we founded that in 2012, 13, whatever, 13 it was. Lots happened over this, this last few years. Um, in 2016, 
I was going into prisons, and, and the reentry coordinator for Region 1, actually, I met her through her husband. We were washing cars at Summit East to raise money for getting off the ground. And, right. and he's, his wife was applying to work at the Department of Corrections as a reentry coordinator at that point. So I met her, and, and, and I was going inside and doing her reentry seminars. And she says, Dale, I want you to apply for this leadership training program. It, and she handed it to me. It was just leadership out of New York City. And I says, you're crazy. They're looking for 25 leaders from around the country that have been formerly incarcerated. They're talking about leaders. Now, I ain't, I ain't a leader. I'm just, I got a little house over here and, and, and a little thrift store. And, you know, I'm not in that category. She says, just fill it out. And she forced me to, or basically twisted right. my arm to do it. Right. Three interviews later, I was chosen. So in 2016, I was, I was brought to New York four times um, on their dime and put through this leadership training program um, designed to enlarge our capacity and to be able to speak to legislatures and, and, and those kinds of people to do criminal justice reform and, and, okay. and that kind of stuff. So it was a really intense leadership training program. The rest was done remotely, and I got a lot out of it. That same year, as a result of that, I was invited to the executive session on community corrections at Harvard. Wow. And then in November of that year, um, for, to a convening on criminal justice reform at the White House. I was one of 100 that was invited there. Wow. See what God does. I mean, it's amazing. That's a long way from the back room of the restaurant. Yeah, or from eating puppy chow with Jack Daniels, okay? Right. In 2019, you shifted gears a little bit and actually left Living Harvest to start the Reentry Solutions Network. Well, is actually, that right? we moved my dad to uh, – he, he, he was 87 years old, living in Georgia, had a little okay. cabin up there on a farm. And he loved to hunt, so that's where he moved to spend his retirement, most of it. And, and he kept the, the deer and the hog population down from, for the farmers. Mm. But he, well, he was getting 87. He couldn't take care of himself much anymore. So he was, a, he was a, a, a mason, so we were able to get him into the Masonic home down in St. Petersburg. He started losing weight in June or July or August, whatever it was. And we took him in, and they diagnosed him with stage 4 cancer. Oh, and it was terminal. There was at, at that age, there was nothing they could do, and that was when I decided um, I was going to leave Living Harvest and go spend my as much time as I could. Yeah. So um, he passed in October that year. In the meantime, I'm living with my mom up here, who's 85. My sister lives in Clearwater, and that was another reason we moved my dad down that way. She's a nurse. We took my mom down. And we found a place for her, but there was a waiting list. Um, and we put her on the waiting list, and we got her in there Valentine's Day last year, right okay. when COVID hit. All right. Mm. So we moved her down. And in the meantime, I had been going back and forth between St. Petersburg and Tallahassee between my mom and my dad. And Donald Parks, the new CEO for Good News Outreach at that point, um, he was the dean at Flagler College. And he said, would you be a consultant for me on reentry over at Good News Outreach in Mercy House? I said, actually, he says, I can only pay you for about 20, 25 hours a week. I says, actually, that works pretty good because um, that way I can spend yeah. a few days here and a few days there. That's become a permanent position now. It graduated over time into that. And actually, that position with Good News is, is changing now even more. Um, God has done phenomenal things there. I got 11 men in, in the two houses that I have there. But my idea with Reentry Solutions Network is something I've been doing on the side. This okay. I've had this vision for this for a long time, even when I was at Living Harvest, is to develop a program or a network that would help men all over the country. 
The Reentry Solutions Network now is going to be an organization that actually connects people to all the resources, whatever they may be, um, and provides a lot of them also. So we're going to have a membership directory of social service providers. I've already made arrangements for that directory, and I've got that ready to go into place. And it's going to be over 450,000 social service providers nationwide. The other part of that puzzle is going to be a membership directory um, of employers that give second chances Hmm. and that will hire people that have criminal backgrounds, all right, Um, or lived experience with the criminal justice system. Then there's going to be another directory of premier reentry providers. And that's the people like Living Harvest or Good News Outreach or whatever that are actually doing really, really good reentry work. But I'm going to offer them something that most of them don't have. And that is one of the biggest things that all of these folks that we're dealing with are missing is the life skills piece. And trauma is a big key factor in everything that drives the people that are so broken today. All right. That's what happened to me when I was 14. That was a traumatic experience. Sure. I didn't realize that until a year ago. Wow. All right. The trauma that that put into my life and the dysfunction that caused afterwards is the reason I went on for 40 years the way I did. Set you down a path. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what happens to most of the people that we're talking about. Mm. Um, My trauma was just a divorce. Can you imagine what a kid six years old goes and sees when his parents murdered in front of him? Um, and then he go, or he's, or he's physically or sexually abused growing up. Those are the people that were incarcerating because their trauma is living out in their lives. You know, faith is a great piece of the puzzle, but it doesn't cover everything. You take a guy that's got really strong faith. If he can't find a job and he can't put food in his stomach, he's still stuck. All right. So we have to look at it in a holistic approach. So the, the, the Reentry Solutions Network is going to have a, a learning management system on there where anybody can tap into the courses like anger management, financial management, basic life skills, how to interview for a job, career development. All those things are going to be made available on the Reentry Solutions Network website and organization. Okay. So providing the resources yeah. for the ministries and the organizations so, that are on the ground. Yeah. Right? So it's actually going to be providing the curriculum and resources for those that are doing the work. Right. So I did notice that you drove here today. So yeah. In a so, car. So how did, how so did that happen? About three years ago, three and a half years ago, um, because I was able to prove that I hadn't had anything to drink or drug for over five years. And I had references from well, you know, you've, you've heard about the people I know. So right. I provided enough references to Division of Driver's Licenses to, and they changed the laws to read somewhat better so that I was able to be placed on a specialized supervision um, with North Florida Safety Council and go on the interlock system. So for the last three years, I've been on the interlock system, which allows me to drive. In the first year, it was only back and forth from work. Um, it's considered business purposes now because of the work I do and everything else. Everything is, you know, pretty much open. All right. Is my last question. Uh, Dale, this podcast is named how I got here. So we've talked about, you know, um, how you got to this point in your life. So where do you think here might be for you in three to five years from now? You know, I, there was a point in my life where I really thought I would want to retire. And I always pictured myself out on a fishing boat or sitting on a bank fishing somewhere and I still like to do those things but I don't I don't ever see myself uh, 
leaving this work that I'm doing. I think it's going to be around for as long as I'm here, for sure. The Reentry Solutions Network vision, I'm hoping I can really get off the ground so that we can really impact recidivism and what that looks like and help a whole lot more people than we are now. And to be able to do that work, I figure um, is what I'm being called to do today. God, that might change tomorrow. I mean, that's where he's got me today. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm just, I'm grateful that I'm able to do it and that I'm still able to get up and do it. But I, I hope that I'll continue to be able to serve the Lord and wherever he puts me. That was Dale White. If you enjoy finding outstanding deals on hard-to-find items, I encourage you to check out any of the three locations of the Living Harvest Thrift Store or donate unwanted items to support the work that Dale started there. It's always a win-win. Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiori Communications who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.